John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 445.IS0526, certificate number 43944, the fastest bicyclist. Do you like going fast? Love it. Yeah. What's my favorite speed to go? Yeah. Is fast. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is when you say that, what are you picturing? Like a sports car? Because I picture like an amusement park ride. Well, we, we have, we've discussed at length that you're not very interested in cars as fetish items, but going fast. The funny thing is because I have an electric car, like I have had, you know, the world's most powerful acceleration tool in history in my garage. Right. For I don't know, at least five years. You know, I've got a truck that's got a, uh, that's got a 400 CC, you know, Chevy motor from the seventies that makes a lot of noise. And your car has some, some like blender motor that can go uh, zero to 60 in three and a half seconds. And the funny time is anytime you price or test drive one of these cars, it's going to be some 20 something bro in in the showroom who, who, who thinks Elon Musk's Twitter is the funniest thing ever with the possible exception of a two-way tie with the time Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan. And he just wants to tell you all about torque. Yeah, torque. Gotta gotta hear about torque and zero to sixty times. And I'm like, what what do you think I'm using this car for? Yeah. I'm carpooling my kids to school and like picking up my mail at the post office. I'm someone buying a Chevy Volt. <laughs> like you do not have to tell me about acceleration times. Like literally I am going to the craft store and home. <laughs> when am I going to yeah, exactly twice a week? Nobody at Joanne's asks me how fast my car accelerates. <laughs> I can go years without hearing the word torque, sir. And yet speed is a real motivator for a lot of techno technology advancement. Speed is a motivator for, uh, for sport internet speeds speed uh when you asked me if i liked speed i immediately pictured myself on a roller coaster and, and i was like, like hell yeah the faster the better oh sure yeah yeah right yeah. and so you like the experience like di- uh wind in your hair i don't you and i've never been skiing or really even talked about skiing what's your relationship to skiing i think i have said before when you did a skiing theme show that i i missed out yeah. as a kid there are ski resorts in korea but they're pretty far from seoul and so Occasionally, I had friends that would go ski, and I just missed it. I Did missed you ever ride chance. a skateboard? Like, on a skateboard, if you were a kid and someone put you on a skateboard, would you try to go fast on it? 
No, I, you know, I've, I, I've had like brief, like, I'm going to figure out rollerblades. I'm going to figure out skateboard. And they were both kind of like one weekend long things that never ended up getting me fast enough. Yeah. You crashed and then you were like, I'm done with that. I guess I never got up on water skis, but I like, I did tubing the same day and I was like, this is great. I'm on a boat, but it's going super fast. Yeah. I, I, I became aware of it as a motivator, uh, in the, in the course of trying to teach my daughter how to ride a bike. She didn't, we didn't, you know, because we lived in downtown Seattle, we didn't have those suburban cul-de-sac bike riding experiences that you and I probably had growing up where every kid had a bike and you just kind of, I mean, my mom taught me how to ride a bike by putting me on a bike that was way too big for me and pushing me down the road and then letting go. Back then, every kid learned to ride a bike by driving into the woods and investigating like a Stranger Things type haunting. (laughs) That was the only way to learn how to ride a bike. But like, I definitely was already neighborhood wide on my bike at six years old and my daughter at eight years old had sort of steadfastly refused to embrace the the technology and part of it was we had to put the bike in the car and drive somewhere where it was flat yeah seattle being built on a series of unnavigable hills to this day often when we go on a bike ride it starts with us loading bikes yeah behind the car put them in the car and drive we live on the side of a hill but many times i would be there with my daughter she had her bike and i would be pushing her along and i would say okay you just need to go fast like you just need to get Going fast. That's how you stay upright. And she would say, I don't want to go fast. And the third or fourth time she said it, I realized that this was like my own father trying to teach me to do sports, where the idea that I didn't want to compete with other kids and beat them at throwing a baseball Mm. was, he couldn't understand it. It It was insane to him that I wouldn't want to go out in a field and... Try to beat the other boys. Yeah, tussle with other boys and try to beat them because it so defined his era and his character. My kids so sneer at their rowdy wrestling cousins. And I remember being that age and also kind of sneering at my rowdy wrestling cousins. Yeah. Like, come on, guys. Hey. Let's go inside. Disney yeah. Channel's on. Yeah. Isn't there some math we could do? <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I I did not like the 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 push each other down in the dirt kind of play that the little boys of my father's 1930 childhood uh, probably thought was normal, but I did have a relationship with speed and I did understand, and this is before my, this is before your my, actual my twenties relationship with speed, uh, a relationship with going fast where it made sense to me to learn to do things because you, it, you want to get good enough to feel the wind in your hair. Yeah, it enabled you to have that feeling of that that admixture of fear and excitement and proficiency where you could go fast and not die. But is your daughter temperamentally not interested in the wind in her hair, or is it more like she just had to get over the hump of the anxieties? Well, the, so for a long time, I wondered, I mean, when we talked about it quite a bit, because she's a rule follower, and that sometimes looks like timidity, because those times when I'm standing at a at a hole in a chain link fence and I'm going, look, this abandoned steel mill, steel mill, like, come on, honey, let's go in and see if there's anything sharp. I'm going to drop you into this quarry. That's how you learn to swim. And she's like, no, thanks. I always wondered whether it was that she was just timid. Uh, and when when it combined with her, like, I don't want to go fast, but really she didn't want to learn a bike just because yeah, I think a lot of what 
what motivated me to learn to ride a bike was the social pressure of every other kid had a bike and you could, you had independence and a bike represented neither thing to her. We were on, if we drove somewhere yeah. and went on a family bike ride, she had no independence. She's not getting out from under your thumb. But when she finally did get to the point where she was like, all right, I'm ready. I pushed her, I took her training wheels off and pushed her fast enough that she started to pedal and was upright. And you saw the look on her face, the revelation of speed and what it meant. And then she immediately from that day forth was an avid bicyclist and just wanted to go faster and faster, as fast as she could go. That's interesting. They, um, I guess there was a lot of what 18th and 19th century fear mongering about the speeds that new technologies would produce and you know, a lot of scary things written about how, you know, if you were to go 20 miles an hour, nobody could breathe and a woman's uter uterus would probably fall out. And, right. you know, do you remember this kind of uh, rhetoric? Well, I wasn't around in the mid 19th century. Oh, you weren't but... the one saying it. <laughs> no, I don't remember uh, saying that a woman's uterus would fall out at 20 miles an hour, but that, I think science has d demonstrated that. It is hard to think of how that would come up in conversation for you. But yeah, there was, I believe this is true, that there were all kinds of period warnings about how dangerous this would be if the human body were to move fast. And it was probably just by people who had never done it. Once you do it, you're immediately converted. Right. You're like, oh boy. Oh boy. This is what it's like to be Superman. And for probably much of human history, the fastest you could go was if you fell off something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not a box. And you didn't have, really have to fall off something good and you could not impart the experience to anyone else. That's right. It would, I mean, maybe diving. If you're a Maori, you know, high diver. Yes. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, slipping down a snowy slope, which will here factors into our story a little bit. That's where skiing was born. Yeah. But I mean, what are the, what, are, I mean, going down a rapid um, and then riding a horse. If you're legitimately scared, you're going to die. Like Lewis Cl and Clark might've been on a rapid. Maybe it does take away some of the fun. But having been down a rapid, the, I mean, speed is certainly a factor in what makes it scary, but it's really the rocks and the water <laughs> and the whole experience of, you know, like you can die from other, it's not, you, you don't die from your uterus, uh, yeah. flying the out of The fall's not going to kill you, but yeah. it's the, you're going to, you're, gonna, you're Canoe's going to hit a rock. Yeah, it's the ground that kills you. Um, so, yeah, what were the other ways that you could go really fast? Faster than a horse could run. If you were a cannonball back then. If you could ride a cannonball. No, if you were a cannonball. If you were a cannonball. I guess you could ride one, too, like Baron von Munchausen. Nobody will remember that baseline. That's as close to being a cannonball as I'll ever be. Um, I mean, ice skates... Right there are some there there were ways that you could that uh, that you could get going, um, but the uh, the nineteenth century was really the era. Oh, and I guess under sail, if you were in a you know a well made ship that had a lot of sail. I wonder if that was a lot of the appeal for you know young boys wanted to get away from home. It's not just strange ports. It's also, you're going to get to be the only fast moving thing on earth. Yeah. You're basically. cooking. And it's hard for us to think now that a ship was once like the fastest <laughs> a thing creaky going. A creaky wooden ship. But you really felt like you were flying and the sails kind of look, you know, made you feel like a bird. And, uh, a, and a ship is not always going directly in the direction of the wind, which is kind of that weird hot air balloon thing where if you're traveling exactly with the wind, you have no sense of movement or speed at all. Right. But because of tacking and, and different kinds of sailing technique, you, you can get that pow. You do get this wind in the spray. 
But the 19th century was, uh, you know, was an era of technological advance, and a lot of that advance was about speed. I mean, wh- one of the first things we put all of our machines to, one of the, you know, now every new technological advance is immediately employed to try and make more money. No, it's employed to make pornography. Uh, well, right, right. First of all, and then money. First of all, rule 34, and then money. But back then it was, yeah, how do you get this crate to Albany faster? Yeah, right. right. Speed speed in every in every regard and speed for its own sake quickly became part of the experience. I mean, it's yeah, let's get this package to Albany. I bet I can beat you to Albany. I bet I can beat you to Albany minus the crate. Um, you know, was the was the the progress. It's a peeing contest from from tycoons. Right. But I guess it also becomes at what point does the actual physical movement become part of the motivating factor, you know? Uh, Pretty fast. And, you know, and it, and it is a test of how good your technology is. And with tycoons, sure, it's um, how fast is your locomotive, right? But for just your common fella who, who for millennia was trying to beat the other little, the other little kid in a foot race from here to there— um, all these new technologies uh, just opened up all these new opportunities to try and beat that guy from here to there. And people had been racing horses and racing their carts. I mean, you you race anything that moves. Um, I guess we didn't mention the horse, did we, when we were talking about ice skates and whatnot? Oh, we did. Well, did yeah, okay. the, I mean, the horse is going to go faster than ice skates. Spoilers. A horse will go faster than ice skates. A horse and will a, go fast, and both will go fo- faster than a horse on ice skates. Poof. Depends, right? If you if, <laughs> does it? <laughs> if you could get a if you could get a horse at full gallop to go to gallop right into a pair of ice skates, there'd be a brief moment there. But I uh, probably I've I've read a lot of Wikipedia. I think the ice skates have to be hammered on by a farrier like like shoes would. Yeah, and then it would be really hard to get get up to a gallop. And yeah, the horse wouldn't like it. Well, we think about the bicycle. Uh, you and I think about the bicycle a lot. When we're listening to Queen. I've got, that's right. You want to ride your bicycle. You want to ride your bike. Both. Yeah. I want to ride it where I like. That's, if I have the choice between riding where I like and riding where I don't like, 100% of the time, <laughs> Freddie, I will ride it where I like. Uh, I've had on my list of omnibus potential show topics from the very beginning the penny farthing bicycle. That was a request too. Yeah. We had had a listener uh, put that on uh, his or her list. And even before we had institutionalized requesting as part of our Patreon uh, community, people were sending us emails and and tweets saying, you should do the penny farthing bicycle. But that's just because people like funny old timey stuff. Yeah. They're interested in it as a signifier of barbershop quartet music, not as a technological article, right? And there's nothing funnier and cuter and more old-timey than a penny-farthing bicycle. Bicycle with one big wheel and one small wheel. And oh, it's, boy. It's called the penny-farthing because one of the wheels looks like a penny and one of them looks like a farthing. Oh, is that true? Is that yeah. about the size relationship between the two coins? Yeah. Well, or, you know... Which is bigger, the farthing, right? The penny oh, the, is bigger and oh, yeah, the, the farthing f- is a... The penny's that much bigger than a farthing? Well, if you think about the penny, it was a big. that was a big coin. Penny-farthing. Otherwise, it would be called the farthing penny. You think you'd have to go in order from handlebars to butt? Yeah, you go in the direction of the coins. The, the That's direction how etymology the coins always move. works. <laughs> um, but the bi- the bicycle was originally the the first bicycles didn't have pedals. They were they were two wheeled. They looked like a bicycle, but the point was that you straddled them and strode 
with your legs. Does that actually help? That's just a Flintstones car. <laughs> it it does. You can kind of, it, you know, they called them the velocipede. Is the idea that eventually you could get up ahead of mm-hmm. steam and lift your feet up like those like those trainer bikes? Or well, not? or or you know, then you're every time you put your foot down, you know, you're do, you're taking a much longer stride than you could running because the wheels are. You know, you're coasting. You're like Oscar Pistorius every time. Right. Boing. So, yeah, you're doingy, doingy, doing. And it was a... It I'm not was, convinced that that's the right way to ride a bike, John. Well, they hadn't figured out... You know, it's, it's, it's so funny how technology evolves, right? Somebody has the idea, hey, I've got wheels, and I've got... And and I and I put them together on this thing. This, I can take longer strides now. Yeah, this balancing thing that I rode down the hill and that was fun. And I rode it down the hill again and that was fun. But then, I, you know, on the way back up the hill, I just stayed on it and just pushed myself with my feet. And it actually was pretty great. You guys, try it. It was just a new. It was a new way, a new way of locomotion that no one had done before. And for a weirdly long time. That was what bicycles were. So this, the first bike, which was, you know, it's arguable whether Leonardo da Vinci invented the first bike, like he invented the first helicopter and the first microwave oven. Did he draw something similar? Or an assistant of his did. But the first thing that we could look at and call like, oh, that's a bike, was was invented by a German, the Baron Karl von Dreis. Karl von Bike. And he called it... Uh, the Lauf machine, which just basically means running machine. Mm. It was a running facilitator. It made you able to run further and faster because because in the because you could lift lift up your feet in between and not fall on the ground. I guess that's right. And that uh, he invented it in 1817. And of course the um, the French loved it, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> And it's the, uh, it's the vehicular equivalent of Jerry Lewis. That's right. A lot of, uh, so P, he, I was surprised it wasn't a Frenchman when you said, yeah, Carl von Dreis. Um, it was called the Velocipede, but also kind of, uh, like mockingly described both as a hobby horse, uh, because there already were rocking horses for children. Right. And then even worse, the dandy horse, because the only people that bought and used these things were the dandies so, of their so time. So you're like some weirdo hobbyist type. Yeah, you've got a you've got your hot your your tails and your breeches and your your dandy hat and your your striding around. <laughs> I would make fun of those the people. streets. Pretty sure. pretty funny. Um, and that continued, and it was a it was a, a niche thing that only that only dandy city types. It spread to North America. People, um, you know, people thought they were whimsical. A lot of the Pony Express riders switched to them. Yeah, they didn't, though. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, it was a thing kind of like the scooters that are now ubiquitous on city streets. The motorized ones. There was a lot of sort of uh, controversy about them because these dandies, I mean, they were steerable. But you, have, if you can just picture... A bunch of guys in their twenties wearing, uh, wearing like wedding coats or I'm sorry, mor- morning coats, yeah. uh, like striding around on these bicycles, you know, they would bump into people. Yeah, it's the same reason we don't like the scooters. It's not, infrastructure issues. Yeah. Knocking people off there, uh, getting in the way of horse drawn carts, knocking people off the sidewalks. And they were not, they were not, they were frowned upon and seen as a sort of dandy affectation. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until. 
50 years later, in the 1860s. It took like a, a human lifetime back then. Yeah. So we had stride, people, stride people were bikes. born, lived, and died without ever seeing a bike with pedals. Before someone was like, hey, what if I put like a crank on this wheel and got it going? Um, and you, know, you can you can picture where the, where the original technology would have been, where the there was no chain, there was no gear, yeah. it was just pedals connected directly to the hub of the wheel, and so you're restricted in how fast you can go, right? Because you're it's just like any fixie bike, there's you, less mechanical advantage, right? There's no flywheel. You're just you know you get up to how fast you're going, and and that's how fast you're going. Um, but people were already racing these velocipedes before there were even pedals on them because you can go faster than walking. And of course you're going to challenge your friend let's ha- to let's see have a contest. Yeah, who can get, who can get to the, uh, young sportsman. There you go. Who can get around the fountain and back in the shortest amount of time with the addition of the pedal. Then because of the physics of it without gears, the larger you make the wheel, the faster you can go. And right. so the penny, that's where the mechanical advantage is. Yeah, in wheel size. The penny farthing bike is just a, an attempt to make a thing go faster. There's no, I mean, a penny farthing bicycle that large tire. It's not easier to ride. It's not. <laughs> it's a little tall. Safer. It's not. I mean, it is elegant now to our to our mind because it represents a time. But it's a completely unwieldy device. It's it. It was only because nobody had thought to put a chain and a gear. Which is yet. funny because people were using the same tech in other stuff, right? Yeah. There were other industrial applications for absolutely for those kind of gears. There were gears. You couldn't get a clock <laughs> without it. There were gears in the 1860s. Just it hadn't it hadn't evolved, and so penny farthings uh, and penny farthings were also scorned as dangerous, not just to to pedestrians, but. People went over the handlebars of penny farthing bikes and broke their arms and died all the time. Um, But, you know, penny farthing bicycle races, I think you can imagine, were probably pretty exciting uh, because they're very tall and they could go fast. They're big, big tires. I mean, tires, wheels. Uh, And that, you know, uh, it was penny farthing bikes that accelerated the development of wire spokes because... You know, prior to that, I mean, the original old bikes were they had wooden wood, spokes, wooden spokes, and wooden you wheels. The, you wanted a lighter wheel, I yeah, guess, right? a, a wider, a lighter wheel, and and um, and f- to to make a big wheel like that with wooden spokes, you know, how fast do you think you can go on a penny farthing bicycle? I'm looking up the record now, which was set in 2019, which um, so figures know, was it in Portland, job. Oregon, <laughs> United Kingdom. So 30 miles an hour? No, 30 kilometers an hour. Oh, 30 kilo- 18 miles an hour. So not that fast uh, uh, can, compared to what you can do on a bike with gears. I mean, nowadays you could probably put one of those little electric kits on the back of it and ride around Portland. But at the time, uh, to go faster than 18 miles an hour under human power sure. would have been would have been very difficult to do. But... Railroad locomotives and steamships. I mean, there were things that were that were now able to go pretty Multiple darn fast. That. Yeah, but even by the time that the uh, that what we think of as the the modern bicycle 
you know, penny farthings were popular in the 1870s. And on the TV show, The Prisoner. But except for that. But it by the 1880s, uh, bikes had kind of evolved to look like a recognizable modern bicycle. Um, they were they were originally described as the safety bicycle because they were because you if you fell off one you wouldn't immediately die of a hand injury because you weren't so high up yeah. Um, but also you know with the gears like you were able to. The other problem with a with a, a direct gear big tire bicycle is how do you just ride very slowly around while, while someone is walking? You know, like how do you how do you ride alongside somebody? You would tip over immediately. You would tip over. Um, but bicycle racing evolved alongside the evolution of the bicycle, and uh, and by the eighteen eighties, bicycle racing was already a a pastime and a thing where people were trying to establish records and trying to, and, 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 and discerning the natures uh, or the limitations of the technology. And this was also an era when the science of aerodynamics was, you know, great strides were being made in understanding slipstreaming and the, and aerodynamics and how it functioned, what drag was, did sports push that forward? Because it did. that's where you see the the small gain, the small incremental gains become outsizedly important. It did, and and bicycling in particular is a thing where, you know, on a let's say on a on a, on a stretch of road, um, you can race eight horses side by side. Uh, but, but it's you know, by but the, the cops time, get mad. <laughs> by the time you get eight horse carts side by side, you know it's an it's an Amish jamboree. Uh, but bicycles enabled a you know large group of of independent vehicles to kind of race in close quarters with one another. Yeah, and I think uh, I think it's demonstrable that horses actually practice slipstreaming with each other. Like they know about it? They know about it intuitively. In the wild even? Um, and so it was not a, but, but it really was from the standpoint of a human discovery, the idea of drafting. Did jockeys not do it? Um, well, they, they did it, but they're they're jockeying for first place. They're, they, I don't know if they were aware yeah, yeah. Of it as a as a science, right? To stay to draft off of the person in front of you to conserve speed. Because horse, conserve horse races energy. weren't actually long enough for that to be a strategy. Usually. Yeah, in fact, in NASCAR, they claim that that drafting as a strategy wasn't discovered, quote unquote, discovered until stock until, cars until nineteen sixty. It was where where it was the first time that a that a stock car driver purposely employed drafting as a as a strategy for conserving energy are they saying that they invented it before any other sport or are they just saying our drivers are so stupid that it took us until 1960 to do this thing that everybody else knew about no in fact in bicycling bicycling it was understood like the principles of drafting were understood as early as the 1880s wow because it was immediately apparent to someone on a bicycle 
You could feel it probably. Well, and this is something that, that sounded insane to me when I read it and I, I'm still grokking it at speeds over 40 kilometers an hour. Aerodynamic drag is 90% of pedal resistance on a flat ground. Wow. It really just makes you want to bike on Mars. <laughs> I mean, if you think I'm about... I'm bike in a vacuum from now on. So this would be... I'm, see, I was, you and I both, neither of us are competitive bike racers. And I know no, they're going to be... And I'm not in good enough shape to be. Like I, <laughs> to go more than 40 kilometers an hour. <laughs> well, I'm, like when, I, when I'm on a bike, I'm just like, okay, wait. I'm, I'm just three miles away. I can do this. Right. And we don't, we don't ride with other bicyclists. Right. But when you watch bike racing... Drafting is such a, like an integral part of the strategy of the Tour de France or, or any, any competitive bike race. And I've watched it my whole life. And, and you know, that, that move where a, where a bicycle team is, um, is all riding together. There's one guy in the front and then he fades back and someone else takes the lead yeah. is a strategy called the Belgian tourniquet. <laughs> And it, apparently invented by the, a Belgian bike racing team. It's a, it, it would be the worst name for a sex move. <laughs> Sweetie, hold on to your bike handlebars. <laughs> I just read a thing about the, I read a blog entry about the Belgian tourniquet. But you know, in bike racing, it's a, uh, it's both a cooperative strategy and also a competitive one. So, yeah. you know, you're drafting off of your teammate and apparently saving 90% of you, the energy you would expend or some portion of it, right? Because you're not perfectly protected in a yeah. in a slipstream, but some large portion. And then you're like, okay, tap out. Like now, you go back and rest, and I'll take the lead. I would have assumed it was you know the kind of thing that gives you back those all important milliseconds you might need yeah. at the finish. But no, it's it's, it's a, a game changer. Well, and I anybody who's ever watched geese form up yeah. to fly south knows that animals are aware of this. Whales apparently do it too. Um, even the birds do it. Bees do it. Yep. That's right. Even copacetic fleas, copacetic fleas are also slipstreaming. Let's do it. Let's slipstream. (laughs) But I wonder, I wonder to a person in 1790 watching the geese form up what they think is happening. (laughs) You know, they're, they're maybe not aware of it as an aerodynamic idea. And maybe they're thinking, Oh, this is, they're weird, friendly. It's a dance. The hand of God has given us this shape to show his handiwork. That's right. And there are a lot of different ways of slipstreaming. There's the direct line, there's the wedge, there's the diamond, you You're know. You're doing intricate things with your hands I right am. Now. I'm moving my hands around because I because it's I good on a podcast. I believe that using your face and your hands is a great way of of explaining things on the radio. Long-time omnibus listeners are familiar with the virtues of native personal hygiene products. Yeah, this is the aluminum-free deodorant and body washes that uh, that we've been uh, pitching here on Omnibus for many moons. They have versions for sensitive skin. They have plastic-free versions. No uh, sulfates, no parabens. There are some with no scents, but if you love the scents, their body wash is available in eight cents and there's a bunch of new scents to kick off the new year that's the wonderful thing about them they keep coming up with new seasonal scents so you never get they never get old native has partnered with baked by melissa with a collection of new scents inspired by cupcakes hello have you ever been putting on deodorant or body wash and thought 
I wish it smelled like cupcakes in here right now. No, but I love someone who smells like cupcakes. I'll sidle right up to them, but not in a weird way. Yeah, there's no downside to smelling like cupcakes. So this is these are the new limited edition scents for January. Why, John, do you not smell like tie-dye vanilla cupcakes? Mm-mm, or mint cookie cupcake, Ooh. fresh peach cupcake? Ginger lemonade cupcake. Is that even a real cupcake? I'm not sure. I don't know, I've but I kind of want my pits to smell like I've it. never had a fresh peach cupcake either. Look, a lot of you are probably buying grocery store cupcakes and rubbing them under your arms if you want to smell like that. And now... You don't have to. This year, up your personal hygiene routine with Native. Go to nativedo.com slash omnibus. That's nativedo.com slash omnibus. And use the promo code omnibus at checkout for 20% off your first order. Yeah, that's right. Nativedo.com slash omnibus, or just use promo code omnibus when you check out, and you'll get 20% off your first order. They're introducing Native... Baked by Melissa, a limited edition collection created to make every day a little sweeter. Mm. It's a partnership with uh, the delicious creations of female founder Melissa Ben Ishay with native simple yet effective formulations to surprise and delight consumers with every wash and swipe. I love to be surprised when I wash and swipe. But you, do you know what's even better, John? Go on. When I can be surprised and delighted with every wash and every swipe. That's nativedeo.com slash omnibus. Use promo code omnibus. In 1899, um, a New Yorker by the name of Charles Minthorne Murphy. Charles Minthorne Murphy. Old Chuck Minthorne Murphy. C.M. Murphy. Is sitting in a sitting at a party. And he's an avid bicyclist, and he and his bike friends are always racing. And, and uh, at that point in time, by the late 1880s or 1890s, uh, this was a topic of sporting conversation. Who's the fastest bicyclist? You know, the, the world record is trading hands. People are... So this is well known, just like it would be with track. There are yeah. very serious looking men in top hats and stopwatches yep. at the finish line. This is part of, this is part of the, the, the bicycling culture of young men of the time. Like who's, who's fastest, who's gone the fastest, the furthest, who is the fastest in a sprint, all this kind of talk. Just saying what ho a lot, probably. What ho! I say that. And, you know, an argument breaks out... Who do you think is the fastest bicyclist? Who how's the you know how what's the fastest speed you can go? And Charles Murphy uh, has a lot of confidence in his own bicycling abilities, and he says that he believes that there's no limit to how fast you can go on a bicycle if you were to if you were able to remove the other factors, drag primarily. But also gearing, you know, the 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 leg tiredness, the technology of <laughs> of the you know the weight of the bicycle and the and the the height of the gears. Back then, they're thinking there's a pretty low physical limit. We're we're approaching the top bicycle speed, and it's 25 miles an hour or something. Yeah, and if you look at a graph of the growth of bicycle speed over time, there are a couple of plateaus. And bicycle speed had increased dramatically between 1865 and 1895, and it kind of leveled off. It then experiences another big growth, and um, it may surprise you to learn that aerodynamics 
as a component of bicycle design was well understood in the late 19th century and then kind of forgotten. Bicycle design got more or less static after the after the innovations that produced the safety bicycle. Mm. And it wasn't until the 1970s that people said, what if we made the tubes of a bicycle oval instead of round? Mm. What if we made the rims of a bicycle uh, like tapered instead of flat? When do they put those cool ridges in the helmets? The ridges in the helmets. I feel like that gives me most of my oomph. Well, think about the speed, the bicyclists wearing you know, speed costumes. Right. I mean, that's all a innovation that was like that dramatically increased top speed of bicycles, but in the latter half of the 20th century, but in the end of the 19th century, people were already saying, you know, you need close fitting clothes because flapping sleeves are going to slow you down. Um, because that quest for speed was so no flapping. So Charles Murphy, he's out on Long Island and he's, He's made this boast that there's no limit to how fast he can go. Uh, and he says, I believe that I could ride my bicycle a mile a minute if I had something in front of me cutting the air. And that's 60 miles an hour would be science fiction back then. Crazy. The, the record is half that or, or less. Crazy. Less than that. Uh, and he has proved it by... Riding a bike on static rollers. Now, oh, this is not just some guy talking out of his ass at a party. No, this these, is a pro- problem he is working on. These are people who are who are dedicated to the 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 guild of the bike. Because this is something that you could see some guy saying. Yeah, yeah, I bet you could ride a bike sixty miles an hour. Why not? No, these are mutton choppers who are doing <laughs> who are already so far down the line that they're building little uh, like wind tunnels for themselves. If you can picture the roller, the system of static rollers that he would have had to build for him to ride his bike at a speed, so he he rode uh, he rode a mile, a virtual mile, on his static rollers in thirty seven seconds. No wind resistance. No wind resistance. And so he believed that he could do this in real life if he could just if he could just just pick a day when the wind is going 60 miles an hour, right. bike in that direction. There you go. Set the record. And the roads, you know, there are yeah. McAdam roads and whatnot, but it's, it's still pretty bumpy to just ride around a town. I mean, it is even now. Riding your bike around Seattle is like, it's like the road warrior had it better is. surfaces. But Charles Murphy, coincidentally, finds himself in conversation with, uh, in a, you know, in a local bar, uh, Hal Fullerton, who is the who is a special agent of the Long Island Railroad, which is then expanding out Long Island and trying to establish itself as like a worthy, you know, the big railroads, the you know the Southern Pacific or whatever. I guess that eighteen ninety five, the big railroads, the Illinois Central. There you go. Uh, the, Atchison, uh, Topeka, and Santa Fe. That's right. The uh, uh, nighttime on the city of New Orleans. Um. Those those big big locomotives are are setting speed records, but the Long Island Railroad is kind of a smaller local railroad. And Charles Murphy is talking to Hal Fullerton, and he says, "Look, this would be a great way to promote your railroad and uh, you know and how fast and modern your equipment is if we built a thing where we built a little wind shelter on the back of a carriage on the back of a." you know, pulled by one of your locomotives. It's, so it would be the rearmost car. It would the be rearmost the car. And then we put down a road of planks 
between the ties of your tracks and I would ride along behind the, the locomotive and you would put on the gas and I would try and pedal and keep up. And I bet you that I could go as fast as your locomotive can go. And in the, in the crazy spirit of the era, Hal Fullerton convinces his bosses at Long Island Railroad, this is a great idea. Well, as we know from Onos, this is a time when train publicity agents will also convince their bosses to crash trains into each That's other. Right. So many great ways. Trust the train. This will impress the safety of the train onto people if they see one blow up. So out on Long Island, uh, starting in the town of Babylon, Long Island, and uh, between Babylon and Farmingdale, they actually put down planks between the ties for uh, a course of a few miles, which is a lot of planks. Yeah. And they get their, you know, their locomotive and their, you know, their best engineer, Sam Booth, is out there with Locomotive 39. And Chuck Murphy's got his bike in, behind this kind of, they build this, this windscreen out of planks also. And, uh, and they head off down the, it's the train. So the train is also kind of differently shaped in order to shield the, not in the front, but in the back behind the carriage. And it's one of those carriages where there's a balcony and there are a bunch of reporters and other, uh, other mutton chops back there with cigars and huzzah, you know, and, uh, and cheering him on, but it's got some makeshift thing to block more. Yeah. There's a roof and there's wings around him so that he's, he's going to be better drafted by the train. And off they go. You know, Sam Booth really pulls it on, but he can't quite get the locomotive up to 60 miles an hour, which is a great embarrassment to both him and to uh, Fullerton. The bike is going faster than the train. And he keeps up, right? Uh, uh, Chuck Murphy keeps up. And so the next time, you know, they they reset the whole thing and they say, this time we're going to pull out all the stops and we're going to put this locomotive to to the test. And they... They give it all the steam. Charles Murphy describes the scene that something, something goes horribly wrong from the very beginning. And what it turned out was that there was some rubber component under the train that had caught on fire. And so Sam Booth gets his locomotive up to, um, you know, up to speed and Murphy is pedaling to beat the band behind, but at, but on this run, he's being showered with swirling dust, hot cinders, burning rubber, paper in the air. He's now playing at expert level. But even crazier, the speed of the train over the planks creates a kind of standing wave in the wood. <gasps> because as the train goes over... I can you picture know, it in a cartoon like piano yeah, keys going... Yeah, the wood goes... And so Murphy is like pedaling on... Like uphill, basically no. He's surfing this wave like he's got to stay kind of on top of the wave, and he succeeds. They do a mile in fifty-seven point eight seconds, at which point uh, Sam Booth is afraid they're running out of track, yeah, or running out of boards. The flanks are going to end, so he slams on the. You know, he cuts the power. The train locks up, and Murphy. Crashes into the back of the train. They needed a better system for this. Who could have anticipated <laughs> that at some point we would have to stop? It's super crazy. And he would have like he would have been injured or perished, except that Hal Fullerton and some other uh some other guy in a top hat are leaning over the back, you know, cheering him on, and they grab him and pull him onto the train. <laughs> 
So it's not a long-term solution for this. No, and and after after the event, like there were there were people on hand from like the International Amateur Sporting Society who said like this was the most dangerous thing they'd ever seen. This was terrible, and they were never going to do anything like this again. But they did credit him with being the first person to go over sixty miles an hour on a bicycle. That's crazy, and that be began a. Uh, a process throughout the 20th century. I mean, this was very hard to duplicate because it's very hard to get a, enough a, planks on a railroad yeah, get track. a railroad to to <laughs> to go with you. But uh, with the with the evolution of the motorcycle and the and the automobile, so you have a you tend to have a car, a lead car. You need something to to cut the wind for you. Um, and so, bicyclists over the course of the 20th century kept edging up that top speed. As uh, you know, as the condition of the roads got better, and as your draft vehicle could go faster, um, for you know, for a lot of the time, like the fastest a motorcycle could go was sixty miles an hour, and you could be behind it on a bicycle uh, uh, in its slipstream and keep up with the the speed. Um, and so, for you know, for the twentieth century, I mean, we were at sixty miles an hour or faster in eighteen ninety nine in 1950, a German by the name of Karl Heinz Kramer, drafting off a motorcycle, finally got up to close to 100 miles an hour. He 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 set a new record of 154 kilometers an hour, or 96 miles an hour. Wow! Uh, and that's in 1950. So it took 50 years to get that extra. I guess I'm just trying to picture a bike going 100 miles an hour. Like you almost because you've never seen it, you have some kind of what if the uterus falls out kind of moment? Like, can bike tires do that? But of course they can. It's it's not that different. I mean, it can be specially adopted, and it's not that different than motorcycle tech, right? Right. Although um, the the next kind of big bump in top speed was in 1962, a Frenchman by the name of Jose Miefray uh, finally went over 200 kilometers an hour, so 127 miles an hour, and he did that on a bicycle with wooden rims. So I don't think that's the right choice. No, technology, bicycle technology. I mean, you would you would think, well, motorcycles are going this fast. Sure. But I mean, 127 miles an hour in 1962. If you did that on a motorcycle, you would be right at the bleeding edge. I mean, that how what's the fastest car? Not much faster than that. And this is and so to get up to those speeds, your your gearing on your bicycle needs uh, needs to be so what they say what they call tall tall gearing uh, that it makes it impossible to kind of start at zero and get and pedal your way up to 127. You miles tire high. yourself out by the time you get through all the gears. You couldn't even you you know you oh, stand all one, your weight on the pedal and you couldn't move it right. Um, so what they started to do is you know you would get towed up to a speed where you could be, where your gear could begin to be probably by your draft, by your draft vehicle. vehicle right. Yeah. And so, you know, you'd hold on and then Whee! let go and start to pedal. But from the, you know, from the time you start to pedal, it is a human powered acceleration, right? You're going from 60 miles an hour to 127 miles an hour under your own power. And it's incredibly hard work. The, uh, you know, one turn of your pedal crank, it represents 
20 feet of travel. I think I've said this before on the show, but I can't believe anybody bikes uphill. Like when I see anybody biking (laughs) up a hill in Seattle, I just think it's a special effect or something. Like my, I do not have the leg muscles for a lot of what they do. I don't either. And, you know, and unfortunately I have not stayed current with like super good bike technology. All of my bikes basically have the same technology of a safety bike from 1899. Yeah. And so I, uh, I'm slow and I'm tired and I never, I never became a bicyclist. I might, you know, I never, uh, it just as a matter of identity. I, I mean, I have so many friends that are like their bike is very important to them and a part of who they are and how they, how they do. Mm-hmm. And I just never was that person. So that incremental gain in top speed of bicycles continued all the way into the 1990s. And in 1995, uh, a Dutchman by the name of Fred Rumpelberg, Rumpelberg. How, how would the Dutch say that? Uh, f- you know, Fred Rumpelberg from, close. from Maastricht uh, on the Bonneville Salt Flats there in your beloved Salt Lake region behind a specially modified top fuel dragster that had a, a kind of like, uh, what would you just, almost a shed built on the back to protect Fred from the wind, mm-hmm. towed him up to a hundred miles an hour and then cut him loose. And Fred accelerated under his own power to 166.9 miles an hour Yow. on a two wheeled bicycle. And so much of the, I understand much of the special sauce here is just the drafting, but he's also has bike tech that's optimized for those speeds that yeah, that you and I don't have access. By this to. point in time, bicycles are being designed for the, for every kind of peculiar work, and bike technology and and um, you know you think about the the uh, velodrome races where the bicycles look you know they're all made of carbon fiber and they they look like uh, something otherworldly. Yes, they look like Tron light cycles. But weirdly, this bicycle. And the bicycles used for these high-speed dragster attempts don't look super space age. Oh, interesting. They is that but for budgetary reasons? These are all just people tinkering in their garages, or do they? You don't do not need the tech much. um, It's a different kind of tech. I mean, you don't uh, those uh, those carbon fiber bicycles at 160 miles an hour would be too light and too. To, you know, they wouldn't, I mean, this needs to be a rugged and kind of gnarly machine. The current record holding bicycle is seven feet long and it has 17 inch motorcycle tires. But when you look at it, the design, the, uh, the, the riding posture it's not super hunched over like a like a road bike because you don't care about aerodynamics. No, because you're being you're drafting. You're in a windless room. So what it looks like is a really cool, super long BMX bike. <laughs> you know, it kind of just, just the uh, the the scale, the the architecture of it, the scale, the dimensions, the proportions. Um, it's a cool looking bike, but it looks like just a. Looks like it has ET in the basket. Yeah, it just kind of looks like a rad bike. You know, one of those bikes that has a big long skateboard on the back that you that you yeah. bungee cord your kid to. Well, so Fred's 166 mile an hour record held from 1995 to 2018. Full generation. Now in 2016, uh, a woman 
Denise Mueller Koronek. She American, German. She's American. And she's, uh, she's a woman in her forties with three kids who's always been an avid cyclist and, um, comes from a family of athletes and kind of, you know, extreme behavior type athlete people. Her father at, uh, to celebrate his 70th birthday, set a new record for, uh, Coterminous perimeter cycling of the United States. <laughs> Apparently, there's a there's a. So this is not just some average weekend rock climbing family. This right. guy biked around the edge of a, of the 48 states. Yeah, it's a it's a 19,000 kilometer trip around the uh, as close to the border the cl- as you can the, get. Whatever the the road is that's closest to the there's not really a road that goes parallel to the Canadian border. Coterminous. Uh, no, you just have to find the route. Mm-hmm. I mean, as close as you can get. And so he's, you know, he's the oldest guy to have done that. <laughs> um, so she's, yeah, she comes from a family of people that are like, I know, what if we did this? And in her forties, she said, you know what, who is the fastest woman on a bicycle? And realized that, that the succession of 20th century, how fast can I go on my bicycle records was always set by some French or Belgian or German. Man? Man. So women had kind of been left in the dust of the sport. There, there were no elite women speed cyclists. No, but there nowadays we're, we're starting to uh, see a new breed of female athlete that, that is uh, uh, where these women are f- world-class athletes into their 40s. Um, these sort of superstar female athletes are able to remain like a world-class competitors into their forties in a way that male athletes are not. Interesting. There is something. Is this ab- physiological it, it, and not just the way the sports are run? Yeah. Some kind of like physical ability to retain strength and not degrade into middle age that, you know, you could make any, I mean, whatever my think piece is about a woman's need to continue to survive and, and endure, I guess. And a lot of it is endurance sports, right? To endure as a, in a tribal kind of context, uh, as a, as a a matriarch where men are expendable, like, you know, they expend all their, uh, all their ordinance and then, but the evolutionary Fade fitness office, you'd think it might go the other way where, um, you know, because of the men having a longer fertile period, you know, they're, um, you might expect them to be fitter in all measures later in life. Yeah. But that's not true at all. Apparently no. And this is a thing we're discovering now as sports, as extreme sports become so much more widespread and there's so many more data points. You can see what the actual theoretical limits are and Women have a higher ceiling. Yeah, like like uh, there's a, a long distance runner, Paula Jane Radcliffe, who is like a uh, she's held records in the marathon, the half marathon. She is 47 years old, and her uh, her world record marathon time was only broken in 2019. Yeah. So, um, I I think that you know that she's still winning marathons in her late 30s. Yeah. 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 Uh, so as part of this, there's this kind of like, oh yeah, the, you know, guys hold all these 
these fast bicycle records, and Denise Mueller Koronek says, "Huh? Well, what if I tried to uh, to set like the women's record?" And she starts to train. She actually, her trainer is a former world record speed holder, someone, uh, a man, uh, her trainer is a guy named John Howard, who was a former world record holder and an Olympic bicyclist who was like, yeah, you know, like, uh, like Fred Rompelberg's got this record, but like, let's, let's see what the, what the, the top female record can be. You know, it's uh, in a lot of record holders, as you, as you know, as a record holder, like you weren't, you didn't set out to beat the world record holder of Jeopardy contests, you just said it. You were the first. But most right? people do. They, they People in this field look for the beatable record. Right. Yeah. And this was a beatable record because there kind of wasn't one. So in 2016, in September, she, uh, and this, and it seems like a friendly group of bicycle people. Fred Rompelberg actually loans her the dragster. Oh, or, the same one he used? Yeah, or arranges for her to use the dragster that he used. And in September of 2016, on a custom bike, she, following the same method, Bonneville Salt Flats again? On Bonneville Salt Flats, towed at first and then set loose to pedal, set a women's record of 147 miles an hour on a bicycle. Yeah. And if you watch the footage, it is extraordinarily scary. It's faster than I've ever gone in a car. Much faster. Well, and it's insane because there's no, there's nothing protecting her at all. There's the windscreen, but if the car even touched its brakes, she would slam into the back of it and there's nothing, there's no padding. You know, yeah. she would hit the back of this car and die. If her tire hit a little teeny thing and went even remotely out into the wind, yeah. she would suddenly be in 147 mile an hour wind. That would, which is not where you want to be on a bike. You'll fly in the air like the lady at the beginning of Wizard of Oz. Yeah, you do not want to suddenly be skidding across the salt at 147 miles an hour. And she's not in any kind of what you would describe as like armored costume because she's pedaling for her life to to keep up this speed. So she's just in a she's got a helmet, right? But she's it, it, looking at it. I'm just I'm uh, even the helmet is probably like well it can't hurt but. Uh. I'm just looking at him like, oh my, you know, you, 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 you wince at how dangerous it is. Well, she's like, that's cool, but you know, let's see if I can beat my record. And two years later, uh, she goes out with kind of the same team and Fred's rooting for her. Everybody's rooting for her. And on the Bonneville salt flats, they start up and she's behind the, the dragster and it tows her to a hundred miles an hour before she starts to pedal. And she just goes, goes, goes. There's not, she doesn't have any instruments. It's a freaking bicycle. And the, the, the dragster takes off and she's, and she and the dragster driver have to be communicating really carefully because it, because it's a symbiotic. All the changes have to be very incremental. Yeah. And you watch her and you know, her front tire is moving around. It's a freak, it's a bicycle, you know, and you, you just, the margin of error just seems so incredibly slim. Well, they get going and she goes 183.93 miles an hour. Wait, what was the record? Previously, it was 166. That's the that's the Dutch guy's record. She sets a new world record. A new world record by over 17 miles an hour. By either gender. Which then necessitated that the World Sporting Organization figure out a new way to describe it so that they have they had to add a new character 
ca- a new category, which is uh, world record paren men. And paren. So there, there's, there's there's fastest the cyclist, yeah. and then there's the fastest cyclist men. men. You know, it's good good for you, yeah. honey. B, good, di- B division. You know, keep trying. And she wow. And she had no intention of going that fast. Um, they just got going, and she kept pedaling, and you know, and I and I think communicating with the drivers, like you know, like give it the give it the juice, right? Like I'm. I, but surely that's what the male cyclists were doing as well. She but just had her physicality, her ability to convert oxygen and and muscle power into into energy. Well, that was my question. So it is something uniquely about her athleticism, and nothing not the not just the vagaries of the of the sport or her particular no, trial I, or I believe it's her her ability to create to to convert mass into energy. The plus, best, but weight. You know, her weight is an issue is a factor. The best high speed cyclist. Is is just a woman by virtue of women are the best high speed cyclists and we just never knew and and you know and potentially like in all endurance sports there's this new universe of like wait a minute are we are, are we not realizing that like there's a there's a a universe of strength yeah I'm really into this it's it's kind of like the thing where um you know intelligence tests were designed by people who wanted to do well on that kind of test. Right. Which means you're measuring a very particular kind of skill and that was mistaken for aptitude. Right. Whereas it turns out, you know, without that cultural bias, you know, maybe all our ideas of who excels on these things are wrong. Is there a possibility that sports were invented by men because <laughs> these were the kind of things they were good at? Yeah, and, like strength and, uh, strength and speed. And we would just assume, oh yeah, well, of course the male has these inherent athletic advantages, but maybe a lot of those are are because of the design of the sport and not the yeah right not like, any kind of theoretical limit like speed is the thing we always measure but is it really like who can endure that is the ultimate test of i mean if you think about the people in my life my mother can endure more pain than right uh, than a thousand other people men right? don't have that could be evolutionary pressures men don't have to endure childbirth they don't have to endure childbirth, and they and really they get toppled off the top of the tribal ladder pretty fast. Quickly, as soon as you show any sign of weakness, you're out. And so endurance isn't a; it's not a thing we measure in sports as much because it's not because it's not sexy on TV. Yeah, it's, it's not as long. Fast. Well, endurance is a better measure of uh, of what actually matters in life, right? Well, like how much of parenting, for example, is speed? Almost none. How much is strength? Very little. How much is endurance? Like almost all of it. One hundred percent, right? Putting up with things. Well, and just uh, just statistically, like women live longer than men. Women live healthier longer than men. The the men if, that live the longest are the ones that stayed married to women. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that can go wrong with a woman is if their bike wheel hits a tiny salt crystal that's like a, a micrometer bigger than the other salt crystals. I should say that the fastest ever person on a bicycle indoor on rollers. Oh, they do still do that, the treadmill kind of it test? It is a record. A man by the name of Bruce Bursford developed a whole universe of um, of super bike that had helium-filled silica tires and the whole bike, you know, looks like a praying mantis and he was in a some kind of crazy uh you know, uh, Black Panther costume. He actually went 207 miles per hour on 
indoors on a treadmill. Wow. Uh, so that is right now, at least the record for how fast you can make your wheels turn. Um, but there's, but you know, and actually, unfortunately, Bruce Bursford died in a, he got hit by a truck at some point, not a cycling accident or not in on the treadmill. That would have been, uh, that would have been super ironic. Another truck on a, (laughs) trying to do a similar record on a different treadmill tipped into his treadmill, hopped the rails. And there is a whole other subset of bicycle records, bicycle speed records that are, uh, conducted on ski mountains where they take a bicyclist to the top and on snow, they just bomb down the surface, the, the, the face of a mountain. Are you even rolling? Like, are your wheels rotating? They're rotating. There's enough traction. Cause it's, you know, the snow conditions are exactly right. It's some kind of ice, uh, you know, an icy high speed. It's the, you've seen high speed ski runs. Yeah. It's that same thing, but on bicycles and it's a whole subset of bicycle speed. I guess rate. you could have, I guess you could have traction stuff on the yeah. tires, right? But that would create drag. That's true. So, uh, but like talk about an, Im, uh, like an impractical record. Like who's the fastest on a bicycle coming down the that side of a mountain? That might come in handy. That's that dates back to ancient, uh, mountaineering rescues where somebody would be on the top of a mountain with, with a, bicycle. a bicycle and uh, and needed to get word to the village at the bottom of the of the avalanche or Yo whatever. This yodeling's not working. They can't hear you, man. <laughs> Yodel louder. Get I mean, on your bike. That is how the Alpenhorn was invented, but probably not how the bicycle was invented. Yodel louder. And that concludes the fastest cyclist. Entry four four five dot is zero five two six certificate number four three nine four four in the omnibus. Futurelings, it sounds, I know it sounds from the events of this episode, like evolution is about to catch up with the human race at any point because of all the dumb things we're doing. But honestly, we've done so many other dumb things that like bicycling down a snowy mountain is just rounding error. One of these things will eventually kill us, but in our day, uh, John and I were still at Omnibus Project on social media. You could find our individual accounts at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick. I think you could find John most easily on Patreon. You can you could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Mail us physical artifacts at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Do you have any requests, John? Uh, just your your grandfather's Rolexes and uh, Ray-Bans. Rolexes. Rolexes and Ray-Bans. And shot glasses. I don't need shot glasses. Well, you don't drink, but you can. Anybody, everybody needs shot glasses. No, I don't, I don't want shot glasses. They're, they're, they're. Can't very, you fill them with like washers and bolts? I don't want that. They're, I use, that's what I use jam jars for. I'm, jam jars. I, you know, shot glasses are a very popular collector thing for tourists and, you know, hey, shot glass. And I, I, I at a young age, I just abhorred them. Yeah. This is not a post drinking <laughs> thing. Shot glass. It's just the dumbest. Yeah. Stop that. My wife's mom always gets, or my wife's grandma always got a spoon wherever she Yeah, went. right. Those little spoons too drive me crazy. They're not practical as spoons. Please send John small spoons commemorating nope. your visit to Salzburg, Austria, nope. and Tampa. Nope. Those are the only two he needs to finish his collection. I don't want your spoons or your shot glasses. Keep those for your own collections. But your sunglasses and your watches. And I mean, watches, that's pretty, 
That's a little bit churlish of me. Well, I, I don't. It really... just sounds like you're uh, requesting expensive items. Yeah. This is not an aesthetic at all. No, no, no. Old glasses and sunglasses are 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 nobody wants those. Those are those are just things that I have a little fetish for. And I just say Rolexes because I'm hoping somebody's like, you know what? I don't have any kids. I don't care about my granddad's watch. He was an ass. What if it's a fake Rolex? No, I don't want a fake Rolex. What if you wouldn't know? I would know. Send John a fake Rolex and tell him I it's real. I don't want a fake Rolex. Oh, and it doesn't have to be a Rolex. It could also be a, like a... Uh, Omega. An Omega. Those, those are nice, too. Or a ball. You know, old old watches are cool. But the old watches are a thing. Everybody wants those. Yes. You know, don't send it to me. You should sell it on the internet or whatever. Yes. Feed your kids. No, no, first. no. But if you're... Ri- I'm, when I say these things, I'm just talking to the minority of Omnibus listeners who are A, rich, B, unsentimental... See, sterile. Yeah, or or their kids are grown and their ungrateful kids are just as bad as their grandfather was. And they're sitting in their middle age and they're like, I don't want all this stuff. I don't want these reminders of my dumb family. I'm going to give it to... I live in the metaverse now. That's right. I want an NFT of my grandpa's Rolex. <laughs> I'm going to... You know, I was at a Comic-Con last week and I'm going to send this watch to John Rodder because I love his shows. Let me suggest something else for our uber-rich uh, listeners. Anybody with... Um, Anybody with disposable income uh, can support the show by going to patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Look at the amazing rewards available to you. You're missing out. If you don't give, you are missing out on a monthly bonus show and all kinds of other bells, whistles, and perks. Mm -hmm. Uh, In that order. Yes. First, the bells. At the $50 level, we send a bell to your house. Mm -hmm. At $100, we send a bell and a whistle. And at a, the thousand dollar peak, John and I will come to your house with an alpenhorn. <laughs> Is that what an alpenhorn sounds like? <laughs> Ricola. We have to stand very far away from your house because the alpenhorn is long, but the the end of it will still be very close to your ear mm-hmm. when we surprise you. You won't be able to see us when we play the alpenhorn theme. You won't or the omnibus see me. Theme. On a, is that song? Is the Beatles song, You Won't See Me, about playing an alpenhorn outside someone's house? It's about playing an alpenhorn out someone's house, outside someone's house who helped fund the production of Please Please Me. Uh, I had no idea. There was a Kickstarter to do the Beatles' first record. You all loved us in Hamburg and at the Cavern Club. The uh, Did I do everything else? The yeah, so um, that's why you can't tax the roots, John, because they will not... Um, have disposable income. Yeah, we're not to trying to tax the, the rich. We're just trying to get the rich to self-tax by sending us some of their riches. It's not good to have all that money. It's morally corrupting, and I think you know it. It's bad for you, yeah. and we're here to help you. Uh, it's a, fa- I, it's I a favor am. we can do. Yes. And when I say we, I mostly mean <laughs> when, when I say we, I mean I. And when Ken says we, he means he's going to help me get your grandfather's watch. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.